0: Christianity Today reports: If five pastors are sitting at a table, uh, in most cases, all five of them will tell a story of a major conflict in their church, and one of them will tell uh, can describe the battle that's raging right now in their church. So, what do we fight about? The report asks. Well, number one reason for 85% of all church conflicts. You know what the number one reason is? Power, personal preferences. In other words, control and agendas, personal opinions and viewpoints. In fact, Christianity Today's findings show that conflict over doctrine was so low, it hardly made the list. So the conflicts that were going on in the church were not about doctrine, they were over personal preferences and power plays. Interestingly, uh, these conflicts presented themselves in church size cultures between zero and two hundred which is no surprise. So smaller churches bear the worst of this burden, right? This proves true in church planning. Now get this, 95% of all original core group members leave the church or the church plan after the first five years. So if you form a church, the original party, the original group of members, the core group that started to help start this church, within five years they're gone. 95% of them over church conflict. So what effect does this have on us? The report asks. 71% of all conflicts center on the pastor. (laughs) That's great, right? So, and this is interesting. It doesn't matter where it started. It eventually sticks on the pastor. Isn't that fascinating? So no matter what happens, it could start out here. Let's say it starts in the, uh, let's say it starts with vacation Bible school. It will eventually be the pastor's fault. Let's say it starts with music. Let's say whatever it is, it eventually will stick, 71% of the cases, to the pastor. Their vision, their philosophy of ministry, their leadership, and their pastoral style. Because of this, 4 in 10 pastors, that's 40% of pastors, leave the church that they're currently in when conflicts happen because of this. The report says, apart from the pastor's personal hurts, the collateral damage of conflict in the church is mostly in relationships. By the way, congregations handle disputes, personal friendships are damaged in more than two-thirds of the cases, for almost as many, two-thirds of them, as sadness will remain in the church for a long, long time, years after the fighting ceases, end quote. And so you know what ends up happening? Forty percent of the church leaves. Forty percent of the leadership leaves the church in these kind of conflicts. So the report jokes, remember the one about the man who was stranded on a desert island? After some months, the rescue boat arrives, the captain asks the castaway, what are those three huts over there? And the the man says, oh, well, that's my house and that's my church. And the captain goes, well, what's that one over there? Oh, that's the church I used to go to. (laughs) So painfully, the report asks, conflict is common in the body of Christ, but does it have to be debilitating? One more question. Disagreements are expected, but must we, Christians, settle disputes often too nasty be our defining characteristic? So that's the questions of Romans 14. I want to welcome you to this delightful passage of Romans 14. Please stand for the hearing of God's word.
1: So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Please be seated. So, Lord, we ask that in the unfolding of your words, you would give light. Would you shine on the page? Uh, Would you fill us with your spirit? We ask this in your name, amen. All right, so here's what we know so far about Romans 1 through 11. Romans 1 through 11 is about the gospel. What is the gospel? And we see that the gospel, the answer is the worth and work of Jesus. The gospel is the Jesus events. Jesus's incarnation, Jesus's perfect life, his punishing death, his victorious resurrection and ascension, the Jesus historical events, and then messages about those events. And so you have historical, life-changing, epic, cataclysmic events tied to messages about those events that are the power of God for salvation. So the gospel is what Jesus has done, not what we do. The gospel is what Jesus has done outside of us, not what happens inside of us. The gospel is good news, not good advice. The gospel is good news, not a good experience. The gospel is a received righteousness, not an achieved righteousness. The gospel is grace salvation, not a work salvation. That's 1 through 11. We are welcomed. We are accepted. We are justified before God by grace (laughs) Because of Jesus alone, through faith alone. We also know Romans 12 through 16 is about a gospel life. What does believing chapters 1 through 11? What does experiencing chapters 1 through 11? What does experiencing the gospel look like in a life? If a person actually believes the gospel, the good news, and experiences it functionally, that the gospel goes to these unevangelized areas of a person's life, when that happens, what does it look like? Chapters 12 through 16. What can we say so far about what that looks like? Here's what we know a gospel life is a life of love. A life of love that transforms you and me, 12.3, transforms the church, 12.4 through 8, transforms our relationships and community, 12.9 through 21, transforms the way the Christian relates to the state. 13, 1 through 7, transforms the way we relate to all of life, the whole world, 13, 8 through 14. So now, (laughs) what are we doing in this passage? Here's what Paul's doing. He's going to unpack specifically what a life of love looks like in a specific area of the church that Roman church is struggling with. He's going to apply it to church conflict. Here's what Paul's going to say. What does a gospel life, how does a gospel life change church conflict? Let me show you how a life of love changes the problems you're having in your church. That's what Paul's doing this morning. So you ready? Okay, here we go. What's the problem in this church? The Roman church. What's the church conflict going on there? Well, there's a reason Christianity today said uh, 85% of all church conflicts are based on personal preferences and battles for control, not doctrine. That's the way it expresses itself functionally. Listen to how Paul and the Bible say why that's true. Look at 14.1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. So (laughs) opinions here literally mean, guess what? Personal views, personal preferences, personal agendas. Quarreling over opinions is to fight for control. So the number one church conflict that Paul is highlighting, the number one church conflict that's being uh, exposed here is conflict over personal preferences and battles for control in the church. Don't miss this. The number one ranked conflict in church history, in the scripture, has nothing to do, has nothing to do with central issues of Christianity, but has everything to do with central issues that bother you and me. 85% of church conflict is not about central realities of Christianity, but it's about central realities to us. In other words, flexible stuff. Theologians call them disputable matters, not fixed stuff, what theologians call indisputable matters. Indisputable matters are things like the Scriptures, like the Gospel, like core doctrines, so what are the specific personal views preferences and agendas that are in conflict in this church do you see this it's fascinating I mean some of them apply some of them don't to us today but the the principle is the same they center around three areas did you see those eating holy days and drinking wine so alcohol that's still one that's prevalent eating eh, not so much but holy days I think there's a there's a translation here it's about observing special days it's about Spiritual disciplines about participating in what you think holiness looks like in a person's life. Okay, well that pertains to us All right, so look at verse 2 one person believes he may eat anything While the weak person eats only vegetables. So there we have it from the Apostle Paul himself. There's nothing better than a good steak I'm just saying Right, and I just want to point out the weak person is the vegetarian in this passage <laughs> It's not me it's the text. Some Christians believe that we should not eat meat because eating meat is unclean, verse 21 and 14. Unclean refers to the Old Testament food law. So to eat meat is to engage in a sin. To eat meat is to engage in unholy behavior. To eat meat is an unholy, unspiritual practice. Other Christians, though, say, listen, we are free to eat all kinds of food, all food is a gift from God. So we're free to eat meat, we're free to eat carrots, and we're free to eat carrot cake. We're free. Look at verse 5. One person esteems one day better than another, while another esteems all days alike. So some Christians feel you need to observe certain holy days, certain spiritual practices, in order to engage in personal holiness. To not do so is to disconnect from personal holiness, to disconnect from a spiritual life. Other Christians believe there are no more holy days except for the Lord's Day, Sunday. So all days are a gift from God, and that means all days are to be to participate in as a gift from God. There's no binding schedule. There's no binding events that happen on that day. All these days have been (laughs) re-enchanted to live freely before God, to enjoy freely before God. Romans 14.21 makes a reference to drinking wine. So some Christians feel or believe you should not drink wine, should not drink alcohol. Other Christians believe that wine and alcohol is a gift from God. We are free to enjoy and drink alcohol or wine. Now, we could add our own list to these controversies, can't we? Today, what could we add? Oh, here's the big one. I think it's fading out, though. I don't think it's as big as it used to be. But it seems to be in every generation it'll resurface. There is worship music, (laughs) worship styles, right? You have the traditionalists and the modernists all saying their music style is more pleasing to the Lord. Why? Because it's more pleasing to them. Or the other person's style is displeasing to the Lord because it's so displeasing to us. We could add preferences and agendas and uh, views about how the church educates children. You want to get a hot topic? Is it homeschool, private school, classical school, public school, Babylonian school, state schools? Mason, Jacobs, Jacoby, and LeBron James. I don't know. There's all kinds of different philosophies out there, right? Uh, How the church engages the culture, that's another one. How do you engage the culture, church? All kinds of different preferences, views, opinions. How the church votes, that's a big one. How the church grows, how the church does ministry, how the church promotes personal holiness. Is there, have I left any out? I'm sure I have. But notice that there's a bottom line spirit to all these driving conflicts in the Roman church. Did you catch it? Look at verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? There's a driving spirit or heart behind church conflicts, 85% of them, according to Christianity Today, and at least number one on the list for the Roman church, and that Paul's highlighting, that God highlights when he starts talking about the way churches interact, this is the one he highlights. And that driving spirit is a spirit of rejection. A spirit of rejection is behind all the preferences. It's behind all the the views, it's behind all the opinions and it's behind all the personal power plays is this driving spirit of rejection, this driving spirit of superiority, this driving spirit of looking down on others. What kind of spirit should be in the church? What kind of spirit should characterize the church? Paul's saying, verse one, as for the one who's weak in faith, welcome him. Welcome him. Verse 3, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Why? For God has welcomed him. Welcome, acceptance, friendship should be the driving, defining culture, ethos, smell of the church. So who's on the right side of this church conflict? And who's causing all the problems? Who's generating all the pain in this conflict? Well, there are two groups of people here. Did you find them? Here's the first group, the one who is weak. And then the other group or the other people are defined in 15.1 by Paul, which we didn't read today. We who are strong. <laughs> okay. okay, so you got the weak and you got the strong. All right, which one is the problem person? Which one is the problem group? You're right. It's verse 1, the one who is weak. Why? Because Paul says so. Look at 15.1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Okay, so what's the second reason the weak are the problem? Here's the second reason, because they're weak in faith. Did you see that, verse 1? They're weak in faith. Now, what does this mean? As for the one who's weak in faith, weak in faith means they're weak in trusting Jesus and his salvation. They're weak in gospel growth. They're weak in experiencing and believing the gospel in this area of their life, in that area of their life, because in all, all of us at one level believe the gospel, but all of us at far deeper levels do not and the one who's weak in faith has not had the gospel go to that particular area inform, shape, restructure, transform, impact that particular area. And because the gospel hasn't gone there, they're weak in faith. They're weak in trusting Jesus and his salvation in a functional, experiential way that's clear to the mind and real to the heart. This is beyond confession. This is beyond theoretical beliefs. This is beyond what we say we believe. This is what we actually believe deep in our hearts. What fleshes itself out in our practice, which fleshes itself out in our words, which fleshes itself out in the way we treat each other, which fleshes itself out in the way we embody Christianity. That's what Paul's saying. They're not weak in in confession of what's true. They're weak in believing it. That's the point. In other words, and some of us need to hear this, they're weak in sanctification. Believing the gospel is sanctification. It's not some new plan. It's not some other plan. It's not some personal plan of holiness out there that's different and apart from believing and experiencing the gospel. Whew. Okay, so why does being weak in faith create problems? Well, there's two reasons in the text. Did you catch the first one? Here's the first one. They can't see the difference between flexible preferences and fixed doctrines. The one who's weak in faith can't discern those differences. All of a sudden, fixed doctrines and inflexible or flexible preferences get mixed and they can't discern the differences and now everything is crucial, everything is cataclysmic, everything is epic, everything is absolutized, divinized, has divine status. Worship styles, how you educate children, political views, how you do ministry. The carpet, as everyone jokes about, and what the new building is going to look like. Jeepers, creepers. But notice the strong in faith don't do this. The strong in faith are able to discern what is a A flexible preference in what is a fixed doctrine. They discern it. The weakened faith can't. So the weakened faith says don't eat meat, don't drink wine, don't worship like that, don't do these things. It's sin, it's unholy, you're licentious. Don't you care about holiness? You're disobedient, you're a bad testimony. If I hear that one more time, I've heard that my whole life, oh, you don't want to be a bad testimony. What does that mean? What does it mean to be a bad testimony? One Roman scholar says, the weak are any Christians who tend to promote and regard non-essential personal cultural views and practices as being critical for Christian maturity and effectiveness. Second reason the weak and faith create problems is this, they lose focus of the gospel in their life, <laughs> And this is the major reason why they can't discern the difference. In other words, we are not accepted by God because of do's and don'ts. We are not accepted by God because of being good or being bad. We're not accepted by God because of what we do or what we don't do. We are accepted by God because of Jesus alone. Period. Period. No buts, no ands, no pluses, no minuses. Jesus' life, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection alone. Keller says, Paul is not saying that weak Christians aren't saved or even that they don't trust Christ. In fact, the weak are generally the most fervent and diligent in trying to please Christ. Where they are weak is in the remnants of a legalistic spirit that still clings to them. They have not worked out the implications of the gospel, End quote. Now, don't miss that there is a temptation for the strong in faith, too, in this conflict. Did you see it? Look in verse 1. Who's being talked to? The strong in faith. As for the one who's weak in faith, you who are strong in faith, welcome them. Oh, boy, really? Do we have to? Uh, 15.1, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, to not give in to pleasing ourselves in how we handle this. So the temptation for the strong in faith is to do what? Reject the weak in faith, to do the exact same thing that the weak in faith are doing. The strong in faith says, look, we're free to eat meat. We're free to drink wine. We're free to have that worship style. We're free to have that kind of worship music. We're free to do these things, and we're free to do those things. So far, so good, right? But this is when everything spins out of control. But why are you such a loser? Why are you such a self-righteous jerk? Something's wrong with you. You've got a problem. I don't want anything to do with you. And now we just perpetuated a spirit of rejection and an evil cycle of conflict. But some of us are thinking, but wait a minute, wait a minute. Didn't Paul do this kind of thing to the legalistic Christians in Galatia? I mean, before the book even started, he curses them twice. In other words, he says, you're not legit Christians. He calls down fires from heaven. He calls down eternal judgment on them. And not only that, when he interacts with them, he has severe sarcasm if you read the book. He even uses profanity when he interacts with them. So here's the deal. Most Roman scholars are pretty, there's a consensus here, and I think it's a good consensus. Here's the consensus. There is a difference between the legalist who's weak in faith in Romans and the Judaizer who's in Galatians. And here's what they all seem to say. Here's the consensus view. Are these the Judaizers of Galatians, the weak in faith in Romans, is that who these folks are? Who insisted that it still be necessary to obey the Old Testament law in order to be saved? The answer must be no. Paul refused to consider such people Christians at all. He did not merely call them weak in faith. In Galatia, there was no faith. See the difference? Now, how you discern that, I'm not real sure, quite honestly. So what do the weak in faith need to hear? We look at this, you look at this passage, what do the weak in faith need to hear to to avoid bringing conflict into the church and to live a life of love? And then what do the strong in faith need to hear to not continue a cycle of church conflict, to not enter into it? and create a vicious cycle of it, or to live a life of faith, or a life of love? What does each need to hear? That's how we're going to end. Let's do this. The weak in faith need a couple of things. First, they need to be able to discern the difference between flexible preferences and fixed doctrine. That's the first thing that needs to happen. So how do you do that? Well, let's start with the Ten Commandments. So if your holiness concern is not on the list, forget it. If you have a holiness concern, and it's not on the top 10, God's top 10, then you need to drop it. If it has nothing to do with the Ten Commandments, you need to drop it. Your holiness concern. Now, we're not talking about gospel issues and other core doctrine issues, but the context here is holiness concerns in the church. That's the context. So, that's what we're talking about. Does that make sense? Okay, but some of us are thinking, but there's a lot that didn't make it onto God's top ten. That doesn't cover everything, and and Paul's response to that is, exactly, that's the point. There are only a few fixed doctrines about personal holiness, the top ten, that we need to be concerned about. If it's not on the list, we need to drop it, okay? Okay? All right. Also, uh, the weak in faith need to deal with their self-righteous spirit. Look at verse three. Let no one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Why? For God has welcomed him. Why must another Christian not condemn or reject another Christian? The answer is because God has accepted them. The answer is because we're justified by faith. We're justified by trusting in the works of another, not trusting in our own works. So we don't condemn other Christians. We don't accuse other Christians. We don't do that because God has accepted them. And if it's not on the top 10 list, you need to drop it. We need to drop it. If it is on the top 10 list, notice what Galatians does tell us to do. You who are spiritual, you who are in a loving friendly relationship with that person, go talk to them. And notice what the text says, gently. And why? There's a warning there, or you will fall. So even when we do engage in loving confrontation, it's always in the context of friendship. It's always in the context of love. It's always in the context of watching ourselves. It's always in that context. It's not in the context of passing judgment, which is superiority, looking down and condemning and accusing and rejecting the person. Never, ever, ever is that the case. So Paul is saying in verse 4, look, who are you to pass judgment on another servant? And then he also goes on to say in the rest of the passage, which we don't have time to look at, say, um, 7 through 12, uh, basically he says, besides this, can you pass your own standards? He asks the weak in faith. And then he says, listen, basically the gist of it is that's what all this talk is about uh, standing before God. You worry about yourself. In other words, the point is this, when we're in conflict with someone, you know that you're in a place to actually reconcile with someone when you actually believe your sins and your issues are worse than the other person's. If we can't do that in a marriage, you're not going to reconcile and you shouldn't try to reconcile because you always be the superior one if you don't. And the same in church relationships, when we get to the point where we're saying, gosh, we worry about ourselves. We we think about ourselves. We're we're looking at the reality of what we're like. When we're able to do that, we're less concerned about the other person's sin and their issues and their problems. Does that make sense? Okay. Uh, and finally, here's what the weak in faith needs to do: push deep into their heart that there's the, that if there's any growth in the Christian life at all, any growth it's by grace, not by works. Did you catch that? Look at verse 4. It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. The literal translation goes like this, for the Lord is able to cause him to stand, cause him to persevere, cause him to grow. The Lord sanctifies. The Lord transforms. The Lord changes a life is what Paul is saying. And so personal holiness is by grace, not by works. This is why Colin Cruz, a a Roman scholar, says the error of the weak when they pass judgment on the strong is that they presume that when the strong live in the freedom that the gospel provides, they will fall into sin. They fail to recognize that it's the Lord who establishes his servants in this freedom and he's able to make them stand, end quote. All right, let's end with the strong in the faith. What do they need to do? What's the message for, uh, for those that are in that category? The we of 15.1. Uh, we need to recognize the weak, the strong in faith need to recognize that the weak in faith can honor the Lord in their weakness. Ooh. Now, there's some, we got to pay attention here. Are you ready? Verse 6, the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. Okay, I get that. When I have a steak, I am honoring the Lord. When I'm eating carrot cake, I am honoring the Lord because I enjoy it greatly, right? Since he gives thanks to God. What does that mean? It means that you recognize that it's a gift from God. Anytime you give thanks, you recognize that it's a gift. If you recognize that it's a gift, it has its proper place in our life. While the one who abstains, uh-oh, this is the weak in faith abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God? What does that mean? First of all, the strong in faith need to realize that the abstaining person can honor the Lord in their abstinence and not turn around and start doing the judgment thing on them that was being done on you. Okay, how? How does the weak in faith honor the Lord in their weakness? Answer, by giving thanks to God. In other words, by recognizing, even though you're abstaining, that this What you're abstaining from is a gift from God and that you're free to eat it. But the problem is now the weak in faith have actually pushed the gospel into their life. Now they know the problem, the ultimate issue is not the food or not the drink, but their own heart. In other words, eating, drinking, and celebrating holy days or whatever it is is more than just eating and drinking to them. It's become an idol to them. In other words, the weak in faith see that area. They look to that area to provide for them what only God can provide. And they've come to realize that. And when they've come to realize that, they are now in the business of honoring the Lord in their abstinence. Because it might that particular area needs some special attention, some special work of the grace of God in their life. And abstinence might be part of that. I'm not it's not saying that it's always part of that. I mean, let's face it. Let's say this. If you're married and you're saying that you look to your wife or you look to your husband to be what God can only be, you don't leave the marriage until you get it right. You confess it. You ask God to change you and work in this area, right? So there are some things you can't leave. You don't necessarily leave your career. You don't leave your children because you have put your hopes on them. You bring the gospel into those areas to transform them. Okay. Also, the strong in faith need to sacrificially bear with the failings of the weak. See that 15.1? We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. What, what does this mean? Well, this is where I'm debating. Um 1413 through 157 is going to specifically talk about how to do that. Um, again, I don't know if we're going to do that or not, but if we do, we'll talk about that next week. But the primary reason is this welcome them. Accept them. Bear with the failings of the week means you sacrificially bear with. Their failings, bear their abuse, bear their rejection, bear their weakness. Why? Because Jesus has welcomed you. Because Jesus has accepted you. When you were an incredible burden and when we were incredibly weak, and when we were failing all over the place. Amen.